have any questions? Want to talk about any of this for a while? Um, first, what was the was the name of the essay that you mentioned towards the end? By Simone Day, mm -hmm. Simone Weil. Mm -hmm. On the right, use of school studies to the view to the love of God. So it's literally true. If you went home and Googled this, there would be a PDF you could download and you can read it tonight or tomorrow night if we're having coffee. It's probably about a half an hour long or 40 minutes long, so it's not like a long, long piece, but it's, you know, that's the argument she makes. I have another question, too. Yeah. Um, so I study organizations, and I, I read the article on proximate justice a couple of days ago. Um, and it seems like that's something that really matters in organizations. But I'm wondering, like, so for Christians, we live in that tension because we know the ending. So it's almost like this reverse causality effect of, you know, affects our behavior now. But how do you how do you match that up with organizations that are full of non-Christians who don't like? Does that still, does that can that still apply, like the concept of proximate justice? Yeah. So the essay is one that um, I wrote a few years ago. An editor of a magazine said, would you write something about the vocation of politics? You've been in Washington a long time, watching politics happen. What's the vocation of politics? In some ways, it was not far from the Marsh Corporation question last spring. <coughs> what is, is there a vocation called marketing? So that was behind the essay. And kindly offered an essay called Making Peace with Proximate Justice. And the argument was essentially that if you come into a, the capital cities of the world, the Washington, D.C.s, or the Austin, Texas's of the world, and you have a burning sense of, you know, I know what is right to do. You know, it ought to be like this. Justice would mean this, really. And, uh, and then, of course, if you're like almost everybody else I've ever seen in the history of the world, you realize after six months or three years, it really won't be like that. You won't get it done like that, actually. Then what are you going to do? And the way I've told the tale in my city is, you probably either go back to Des Moines thinking, you know, I tried Washington, it's just too messy there. Or you'll stay with some version of House of Cards and say, it's just a game. Wink, wink, you know, wink, wink, it's just a game here. I screw you before you screw me. But stay actually with a sense of location in this you know, messy place like the capital of lawmaking city is. I've spent my life in some ways quoting Lord Bismarck, who was the German Chancellor a century and a half ago. So this is before House of Cards was ever even mentioned. <laughs> but he said this about you know, German politics a century and a half ago. If you want to respect sausage or law, then don't watch either being made. <laughs> and you could hear that, I think, if you didn't think about it very, very carefully, as cynicism. I don't think it is, actually. I would argue that it's actually hard-boiled realism. It's a hard-won realism. Because it is sausage-making. And if somehow you cannot deal with the sausage-making, you will go home. Or you'll stay and become a cynic yourself, really. And just get yours out of it before it's all over. But to stay at it over time requires <clears throat> making peace with what I've called proximate justice. Which is a justice that is true and honest, but it isn't everything. It's something but not everything. And if all you get to choose from in terms of the way the world works is everything or nothing, all or nothing, what you end up with eventually is nothing. It just happens that because never ever do we get everything. In marriages, you know, in love, in friendships, 
in communities, in churches, you know, even in businesses, of course. I have told some stories about people trying to do some unusual things. Is HEB perfect? Well, it's not really. Do they do good work? A lot of the times they do. They're trying to do good work. It's a hundred years later, and you know it's a bigger co co you know conversation and a more messy bureaucracy. And I'm sure that sometimes, some places. So I was in the Central Market a couple years ago, and I just thought, I'm going to ask you, checking me out here. You know, how, what is it to work here? You know, you think about that. I didn't tell them that I am Mr. Butt, really. You know, that I have a relationship with the family. I just said, do you like working here at the Central Market? I just want to know what she or he would say, really. You know, um, it's not perfect, really. Um, you know, it's a frail effort, my friends in South Austin, making the treehouse. I mean, I hope they make it next year, and they're still making it three years later. But I mean, it's a. I mean, most businesses don't make it, really. You know? So the question that you know, Mr. Barry said to us, you know, that day with him, it's one thing to make money for a year. You ask certain questions. But to make money for 100 years, you have to ask other questions, really. So how are you going to keep at it in an organization, whether it be a political organization or a business or a business, business enterprise, really, um, you know, and actually keep at it over time? And my own reading is that unless you can somehow make peace with the reality of the proximate, you probably won't stick with it because you will either become so frustrated with the imperfections that are there or you'll somehow decide just to game it yourself and play it as a cynic because you realize, I've learned the rules here. I can do this. I get what I want out of it, actually. But tell have to be there for the common good of the organization, for its long-term best hopes, really. You have to somehow be willing to, to give yourself to what might be, what could be. One of Barry's own best gifts to me is when I read these essays, inevitably he comes back and he says somehow, you see, it's a lot like marriage. I think... That's pretty good, my Perry, really, because it is really a lot like marriage. You know, I'm not a pastor; I'm a professor. I get asked to somehow to give wedding homilies for young friends who get married. I don't marry them because somebody has to do that officially. I get asked to speak about the the meaning of marriage or something at the wedding to muse on the meaning of marriage. Uh, and uh, I try to wonderfully honor the day, you know, all its glories and hopes, you know, beauties and what, and happiness, really. But I will always sometimes say in the homily, would you make these promises today from your heart of hearts if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that in 20 years you will have found proximate happiness together? Would that be enough for these promises today? Or are you going to require of today something more than that? This perfect day that you've created. Will it be a perfect marriage you've created then? Well, it won't be that, of course, really, because it's just not your history. It won't be your future, really. So what will happen in two weeks when the honeymoon is literally over, you know, and three, three months later, three years later, will you be able to find your way into a long-loved love, as Madeline Michael one time put it, you know, and realize that it's a good thing. It's a good thing, actually, to be able to give yourself to honest, real, touchable, true happiness that's not perfect or everything, because it's something that's proximate. Uh, I think the same thing is true, actually, of organizations. We have to kind of step into the reality of the Texas Teachers Association, or you know, you know the HEB Corporation, or you know, the Marsh Corporation, or Texas State Polity, or I mean, the people who come to a city like this with hopes for Texas, you know, and can't somehow make peace with what might be done in a broken world, a now but not yet world. 
I think that inevitably we become cynics uh, in a lot of way. Just really quick, I understand that theologically from a Christian perspective, but for non-Christians, how is that not, how is that different from we're just going to lower the bar mm-hmm. to reach something yeah. that's mm-hmm. attainable? Yeah, and I understand that, really. And I think in some ways, I mean, you're having to find language to be made sense of by, by people, really. Um, and uh, in some ways, it's sort of almost a defeatism with the one, you know. And I wouldn't say you couldn't talk to that person, of course, because of course you could. Maybe you have to, really. You know. But maybe lowering the bar is, you know, I'm, I'm going to release myself from it having to be perfect. You know, the adage which can be probably abused in this world, don't make the, the good the enemy the perfect, and the perfect enemy the good, I guess it is, really. Yeah. Somehow you could do good work. You could have a good marriage. It could be a good company. You know, even if there's a perfect marriage or a perfect company or a perfect law, you could have a good law that serves most of us most of the time, even if it wasn't a perfect law that served all of us all the time. Because you realize in this now but not yet eschatological moment for Christians and for non-Christians, we will never in anything achieve perfection. It's just not a possibility. I've watched the Nationals play baseball the last few years. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's a funny thing that you can be lauded as the best of the best, get paid way too much money in this world. To only hit the ball once every three or four times, once every four times. Really? You know? I wrote an essay called Proximate Hitting one time, you know, just thinking, you know, we, we, we pay them millions of dollars not to get four hits out of four times, really, but like, if you do it like once every three or four times, we think, sheesh, you're going to get millions from us, because that's awfully good, actually. You think, really? That's way less than perfection, really. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, you're a pretty thoughtful person, I can see. Um, I don't want to take up too much time. Try one more time. Um, we'll go somebody else. Okay. <laughs> I think there's definitely a difference in the outcome of perfection versus the outcome of justice. So um, we have in social psychology, there's a difference between um, entity and incremental theories of intelligence. So and it can be applied to per- perfection, situations, achievement. So people who have an orientation that. Um, that intelligence is an entity, you have it or you don't, they'll approach things as perfection or nothing. And on the other hand, incremental incrementalists will mm-hmm. say, no, you can achieve this with little steps. You'll never be perfect, but it's worth trying. Mm-hmm. Um, injustice, on the other hand, um, I think it's I think it's a little bit more difficult to define like what's a just outcome and um, you know, whether it's worth taking steps. I don't know. It, it just... I'm not sure there is a distinction, but we can talk about maybe afterwards okay. about that. But it seems to me that actually closer than maybe you said here. Because um, I don't know how you do one without the other. Really. I mean, I, I just don't think in the world we have to live in that you know, anything other than incrementalism is really very true. Um, which is in some ways why I would say, you know, Bad management theories always lie, and the most of all about the human condition. Because you know, you're asking the question, so what, what's possible given what, who and what human beings are? Is it possible for actually, actually to achieve anything, you know, everything, 
uh, perfection. Uh, it all it should be like this, always, every time, everyone. Uh, I don't think we get there. Uh, it's called utopianism. Uh, I think to do a good thing, you know, to do an honest thing, to do something which has honest truth about it, it's, you know, in Percy's terms, it's a signpost in a strange land, and I can live for that. Of how it should be, could be, someday will be, and I can live for that. Whether it's in my marriage or whether it's in a business enterprise. It's a signpost in a strange land. It's a good question, though. Greg? My failure in Indian doesn't usually arise from bad theology, a belief that things can't be different. But from lack of better terms, from lack of imagination, how do I go about making it different? For example, well, for example, what's an example of, uh, of, you use the word theology, and then you use the word making something different. So what would be an example of something in theology and then something that you're asking for advice to make different? Do I, I'm talking about world. Do I believe that I am responsible and that I make choices? Yes. I'm going to understand what the scriptures say. Yeah. Uh, do I understand that this side of the second coming, uh, I can grow in the image and likeness of Christ and I can exercise choices around me to change reality, mm-hmm. not to make it perfect, not mm-hmm. utopian, but can I do that? When it comes to my failures, I want to look at a real life situation. I had a call earlier this semester, a week rather, in which I got three different calls from three couples in my church, each one of them saying, we're on the verge of divorce. It was one of the worst weeks of my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I felt in the face of (laughs) so much that is wrong, I, I don't know how to go about changing it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense? It does, really. And, you know, you and I are clearly enough of seeing much of the same world we've lived in great together. But um, I was talking to somebody this past week who's full of hopes and dreams and hard work for changing how things should be in the world and really in concrete and important ways. And, but I was poking a little bit, just saying, well, tell me more about this then. And how about, about this then, really? And, um, and why did this happen, really? And he said, well, I'm a pretty you know, candid person, I guess. I probably could just tell you that. You know. um, he said, I was abused when I was five years old. Uh, my first sexual experience was with a cousin who abused me. Um, and he said, and you think, you know, I'm how many years old now? You're decades later in my life. And he said, you know, he said, I still think about it. You know, it has scarred me. I was wounded by that. And then this happened, you know, some years later, you know, another very different kind of experience, really. And, you know, and for him, it is, you know, um, it's a worldview, of course, but it's born out of his own heart, which it is true for all of us. We're not primarily, first of all, rational creatures, I wouldn't say. You know, the Hebrew vision is that we live out of our hearts. You know, we're, as one of my friends puts it, we're cardio-optic people. We see out of our hearts as human beings. Um, and, uh, 
And so for this man, I mean, on the one hand, he wants to do good work, and he's committed himself to this. But there's a sense in which he feels like he's always having to address the demons in his own being, his own history, which have said to him, you know, come on now, you know, somebody's going to screw you again. I said to him, one of my most favorite verses in all the Bible is in the prophet Jeremiah, who said, you heard that it was said, this is the saying, that when the fathers eat sour grapes, their children's teeth are set on edge. And Jeremiah says, when the new covenant comes, this same will no longer be true. Um, and for me, that's a real line in the sand, really. You know, in some ways, my whole existence, I would say, is based upon that being true about all of us, really. That it's not, we're not fated. Really. And of course, my own listening to Bonham on this business of karma, is to say, I think you're right, Bonham, actually, as I watch the world, listen to the world. Karma is so strong, so pervasive globally in either the materialisms of the West or the pantheisms of the East, really, that almost all of us, in some ways, would rather not have to be responsible. As I read Romans chapter 1, it is, you know, we know all we need to know about the way the world's supposed to be, the way that it actually is, but we suppress it because we don't want to have to deal with it with what it means for us, what it will cost us to actually respond to what we know to be true. Um, so on you know, the question, Greg, which I feel with you, because you know, those are the questions in my life and my weeks too, really. And I, I, I would, some ways I would say, you know, uh, it can't be that business is just business and politics is just politics and, and marriage is just marriage, you see. You know, somebody's going to screw you in the end anyway. So just, you know, why even try this, really? You know, it's just, it's going to not be happy for you in the end anyway, really. You know? um, and uh, um, again, I guess I would say I'm willing to put my hope in by the signpost. You know, somehow it could be done differently. It could be done differently. And that's why I've latched onto this sort of strange little word in, you know, East of Eden by John Steinbeck. You know, Timshaw, thou mayest. And realize, in fact, that we can make choices. We can make choices. Yeah. There may be small little incremental steps. Incremental is a good word there. Um, you know, they're not everything, but there's something, really. And apart from deciding, you know, that the fates have ruled against me, my marriage is done, she's always going to be, he's always going to be, really. And sometimes in the hurts and wounds of this world, somebody does turn out to be a scuzz bank, you know, and does awful, terrible things, really. But I think, you know, it's always a possibility. As God said to Cain a long time ago, you know, sin is lurking at the doorway of your heart, and prowling and wanting to catch you and eat you up, really. Thou mayest make a choice here. You can make a choice here. It's not towards that end. And, uh, you know, sometimes we can just, we cry out and we grieve and we are full of heartache because we realize, in fact, for all sorts of sad, sad reasons, it may be that this marriage is done with, really. As God and Jesus himself says, answering the stupid question from the Sadducees, wanting to trick him up about the meaning of marriage, he said, you know, come on now. You know, it's because of the hardness of your hearts that divorce is a possibility. You know, as long as you realize that, it's the hardness of your hearts. You know, of the hardness of the human heart in the abstract, but the hardness of your hearts. You know, it may be that you end up with this decision, but it's because of the hardness of your hearts sorrowful as that will be. What do you think? I think uh, I need to be encouraged and grow. 
Maybe we could talk about it some more. I do too. <laughs> yes. Um, I was going to ask if there is like a relation between um, just the idea of like thou mayest and then like the ideas later you see in the Bible of like slavery and freedom and like if there's a relationship between that. Like, maybe you could just talk about it a little bit. Being slave, what kind of slavery? Um, I guess I think a lot of like slavery is sin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe like it seems like a lot of like being a victim mm-hmm. uh, your environment and then just like freedom. So Augustine's framework was again, you know, at the fall we are non passe non peccare, not able not to sin. Right. It's kind of a hard judgment, isn't it? Sort of a hard reading of your life and mine. You know, uh, if it's at creation, able to sin, able not to sin. At the fall, not able not to sin. Uh, it's why in the you know the scriptures we, we're described as you know we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot not sin. Um, don't imagine that you can actually. You know, I do a, a good person who can sort of make it on his or her own. Really. And the biblical vision is you're just kidding yourself, really. You know, non passe, non peccare. Uh, and it's only by the amazing grace of God that we're able to find our way into the gift which is passe, non peccare. You can choose against. It's possible to say, no, um, you can choose against this by the grace of God to you. Um, and uh, that's would be how I began the answer at least. Would it be so like Cain like God told Cain, hey thou mayest mm-hmm. he's like, you know, post the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, so did they Cain really have the freedom? No, I would say that he did but it's yeah, like okay. in some ways, I mean again it's hard to understand everything about it. I mean, yeah. you know, we don't understand it is it's a small story in some ways. It's a said about it, but I think we have to assume that in fact Cain had an honest choice there. He didn't have to kill Abel. It wasn't fated that he would kill Abel. That's the debate in East of Eden, you know, and as, as they debate the words and how the language is used, and it could have gone this way. You are forced to do this. Is one way it could have been read, you know, philosophically. You know, Cain, sorry here, but you're forced to kill Cain. Get Abel. You know, sorry, that's your that's your fate in this life. That's your karma. You know, it's just yours to deal with, actually, because you're forced to do this. That's one way to read the human heart. And of course, in some ways, most of life does that. Most of the world says that way, in some form of determinism. You know, I was fated to do I could not have done otherwise. You know, as a father of young children, you know, frail father that I always was and still am, when I would read a story to my kids, when it had the language, you know, that uh, somehow it said something like, and Johnny could not do the right thing. I would always edit that in my reading story that he chose not to do the right thing. Because they didn't want them in some ways, even in their own four, five, six-year-old hearts, to think that actually the stories that I was telling them actually were submitting themselves to a determinist universe. When in fact, they had to do the wrong thing. So there was no choice other than to do the wrong thing. Now, the stories of life are full of that possibility. That's why, that's why, for me, when I've latched onto this as I have, I've said, fascinating, John Steinbeck, that you actually make a whole novel, a Pulitzer Prize-winning story writing, and you say, the heart is going to be thou mayest. That's fascinating, actually. You get to choose. Why? Because Havel said, the secret of man is a secret of responsibility. Why? Because Augustine said, you know, 
Pasik Bakai Pasik. These are good questions. Is that worldview like? Is that only achievable through like through Christ? Like, only have freedom in Jesus and like Him delivering me, or is that true of like yeah. all people that have seen some aspect of like God's grace and just the hope that we can have? In some ways, it's a mysterious question, mysterious answer, and I can't be the final judge of that. Right? The subtitle of this vocations book is called "Common Grace for the Common Good," and I believe in that with all of my heart. So I'm not requiring that somebody who loves Jesus makes all my reading glasses, you know, or makes my shoes, or, you know, grows all the, you know, um, the carrots that I eat. Uh, you know, they, they might love Jesus, they might not love Jesus, really. Um, uh, so I'm not requiring that of people. Um, but I do think, you know, that uh, um, uh, in some ways, again, I don't usually speak this way, but I'm going to do so for maybe a little bit of drama right now. It's either going to be shit happens, you know, it just does, really, um, or you're going to choose another way of making sense of the world. Um, um, and uh, my, you know, brief contact with JT down at the coffee shop this afternoon. You know, they, on one hand, you know, they, I can see they make interesting cupcakes and you know little pieces of this and you know that and cookies and things like that and made a nice cup of chai tea latte, which I appreciated in the afternoon. And, I didn't ask them, do you believe in the Nicene Creed? No. <laughs> and, and I wasn't really looking for them to make a Christian chai latte either. There's nothing about the Mars Project which has as its secret agenda to make ichthus stamped M&Ms. That's not part of the project. People who own Mars, from what I know, are not Christian people, actually. The three siblings who do. But there are people who work for them, this chief economist and other executives, who actually have said, what does it mean to be salt and light? in this setting here? How would we see our own vocations trying to work for the way business is supposed to be in the world, the way that it might be in the world? What about if we argued for this and we pushed for this and tried to be persuasive about this, actually? You know? And I mean, the question I've been asking for a long time, people, whether they're people in the rock music world or you know, executives for the Mars Corporation, is this one. Can you sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language the whole world can understand. Because we have to f- somehow figure out a way to speak in the world about things that we think matter most, that are the t- these truest truths. Yeah. To people who may not share our own worldviews, our own deepest convictions. But how are you somehow going to live in the world people who are like that, which of course is a lot of the world, people who are like that, without having to say, well, you have to believe in Jesus first, then we can talk really. But how are you somehow going to make a, a case for, you know, you know, a law that has implications for all of Texas? How are you going to make a case for, you know, for a way to do business that somehow, you know, isn't just laughed out of the boardroom of the Marsh Corporation or dismissed as out of hand at the side school at Oxford? What? You're arguing for this? Why? You know, you see, unless actually the metrics make sense. That's been a lot of the work of the last 10 years, actually creating the metrics which actually make economic sense of this different economic paradigm. Unless you can actually do it on that level and show that, in fact, the numbers mean something, that actually the numbers are behind this, there's no conversation to be had. And so somehow, I mean, 
my deepest conviction in some ways is that we, we all live in the same world, the world that God made. And we don't get finally <coughs> to choose which universe we get to live in. You know, I'm talking to my Hebrew you know, scholar over here. I said, we live in the covenantal cosmos of God. You know, that's the deepest ontological, metaphysical reality in my mind. We live in the covenantal cosmos of God. Um, that makes sense of our existence as human beings. Whether we like it or not, choose it or not, want it or not, prefer it or not, we could tell them that world. Um, yeah. So it's a good question. Idea that, like, this is uh, slavery, sin, and freedom are like you know very Christian words and like ways of thinking yeah. about it. But, yeah. but maybe that may is something that everybody can appreciate. And in some ways, that's why I'm bringing it here tonight with you because we all can talk about it. Yeah. Even the guy that. And the, the coffee shop said, I know East of Eden. I know thou mayest. My, my girlfriend, when I was 16, had Tim Shell tattooed on her ribs here. I thought, well, here we are. Why doesn't that surprise me? Because you, know? you see, in the poets and playwrights and sing, songs and songwriters of the world, you know, in some sense, everyone's listening to Mark Mumford and Sons, whether you love Jesus or not. You know? They found a way to sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language a whole world understand. They are Trinitarian Christians. They have an honest, serious faith. They're not trying to make Christian M&Ms or Christian songs. They're trying to actually to somehow be common grace for the common good. And I think that's pretty good. Anybody else? Yes. I went to, um, I went to a talk once and this, this doctor had worked in Africa and uh, there had been problems because he would give medicine to people to, to heal them. That's and, a problem, isn't it? Well, the problem was that they would uh, they were very deterministic and they very much uh, had the idea of fate <coughs> in their mind. So not this idea that, well, uh, things can work. I can work towards getting better mm -hmm. or people can help me get better. It's just capricious gods. You know, gods must be crazy, huh? Exactly. So, so why bother with this in the first place if it's going to happen? If I'm going to get yeah. so in in the in the West, is there is there kind of a, a an overlay of like the Judeo Christian heritage that uh, uh, increases the odds that uh, we can work together despite pluralism? Um, and, and try to work in that, that idea of proximate justice, whereas in other parts of the world, it's just so much more difficult because um, of their particular heritage. I mean, I, uh, granted, there is this. Um, this is the this is the the whole world was made by God, but it seems I'm, I'm wondering if if the heritage of a place, even if the people no longer explicitly believe mm -hmm. in um, the Christian God. Just the, just the culture. Of you were part of the lunch discussion. We were reading this mm -hmm. essay by Percy. And he makes the right. argument, what happens when the fat is all consumed? So he says, mm -hmm. if the novel is a creature of the Jewish Christian view of history and the human condition, was his thesis. Uh, and he sets this forth and explains this in a certain way. He says, what happens when the fat is consumed? When it's all over. We've eaten all there is to be eaten. He says, look at the loss of narrative structure in postmodern fiction today. You know, I mean, maybe you like that. I don't typically like that, frankly. You know, I think, so what's the story about? 
Nothing? That's hard for me, actually. You know, we're going to go like this, like this, like this, and you're going to say, isn't that crazy? And I say, well, the emperor has no clothes, actually. You need to say it out loud, actually. And I don't really think it's in some ways worthy of my heart to uh, celebrate a loss of of narrativity, a loss of narrative structure. I was talking to you know, the grooms this morning about my own city, you know, and the, how the fat's being consumed. And you think, what's it going to mean in the next generation? So one of the most beautiful structures in Washington, D.C. is called the National Cathedral. Uh, it's on a hill, and it's just glorious, really. And I used to take visitors there all the time, and I would sometimes go on quiet days. You know, my friend from MIT back here somewhere, we're looking for a, a quiet space, really. I mean, the National Cathedral is a quiet place to go. You can kind of find your way into a little chapel off the side or uh, this place or a garden so I've been thinking I need some quiet I need to spend a day in quiet and I could go there really well I don't go there anymore really for lots of reasons I suppose but principally it is that you know as the fat is being consumed culturally in America uh, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church uh, two years ago decided that she would name as the new dean of the National Cathedral a former bishop and Episcopal bishop in Los Angeles when the Washington Post interviewed him last year and said, so, Dean, you know, who are you and where do you come from? What do you believe? He said, well, what do I believe? I believe in a non-theistic Christianity. And you said, you're the dean of the National Cathedral? And you're just sort of, I'll use a harsh term here, sorry, but you're sort of doing theological masturbation. I mean, what are you doing to yourself from there? I mean, you imagine this amount can make you made sense of? You're the dean of the National Cathedral and you believe in a non theistic Christianity. He probably couldn't teach at Redeemer Seminary, could he, too? Good for for Redeemer Seminary. You think, so what are we doing to ourselves here? Just sort of imagining that somehow we can just go on to the future and we can just eat all the fat, we consume all the fat, and and what's left? Well, you know, I guess I would say in some ways, I mean, given that I read Africa at large as being a place where, you know, fate actually sort of the umbrella of you know imagination and mind and heart culturally for the whole continent in some ways, um, and uh, and that is a hard that's a hard part of African history and culture and economics today actually that fate actually means so much said or not said implicit or explicit really because it's really hard to choose against fate things will be as they will be. Uh, I have a son who's a veterinarian for is a veterinarian for the Navy SEALs right now lives in Coronado California and. And he spent about a year in his veterinary studies uh, NIH fellowship in India. And I went to visit him while I was, he was there. And I wasn't taking any notes. I just was watching as, you know, as he drove down this highway and this road. And on the last day we were there, I said, Elliot, doesn't Hindu culture produce hospitals? Every hospital I saw had a red cross on it. It was called St. George's Hospital. And I, and I said, Elliot, what is this, really? I mean, doesn't Hindu culture produce any hospitals? And I had my own thinking about it. I didn't know what he would think, but I, he gave a nuanced answer, which I was respectful. He said, well, I've met a lot of really good Hindus this year, and they're very generous people, and you know, they do this, and they do that. But he said, no, it doesn't produce hospitals, because you see, karma is so strong in India that, in fact, my karma doesn't implicate me in your karma. I'm not responsible for your karma, because I can't change your karma, you see. That's your karma. Or to put it in other terms, that's your shit. You, know, uh, you, know, you have to deal with it yourself, really. So get over it. And I've gotten over it, too. I have my own stuff to deal with, to use a nicer term here. Uh, 
I have my karma, you have your karma. And my karma doesn't implicate me in your karma. And yours doesn't implicate me in mine, really. We have to do our own stuff in this world, really. Um, and you have to think through, so what ideas do you have to have in the world to actually create hospitals? We put this right now, you know, the loss in some ways of a medical care that's more human and humanizing in America today. You know, it becomes simply a matter of numbers and you know, you know, spreadsheets and you know, and uh, my daughter is having a baby in two or three weeks. You know, and Meg and I were kind of laughing two days ago, thinking, really, she has to leave in, within four hours? Now, medically, is that okay? I suppose it is. But like, she gets no breathing room at all. She just has to go home within four hours after the baby's born. You know, and you think, well, of course she does because that's what the insurance companies will allow for these days. I mean, because it's just a matter of get them in, get them out, and you know, and it will charge you ten thousand dollars anyway. You, know? you think, would it be nicer just to be in the hospital for like a day or two or three or four? So we just sort of to get used to this idea of being a mother of this little child and. And in thousands of ways, that's just one face of it. And we are, fa- we are increasingly moving into the reality of a secularizing world in the West, too. You know, where we lose the, huma- the humanness of our common life together. And we simply become numbers to each other, you know, on spreadsheets. And it's harder and harder to live that way, you know, because we have no human faces to appeal to, no sense of humanness to ask for or to expect of each other. And that's not only a problem in Africa, but in India and in a secularized America. Yes? I do have a question, just real quick. Side note, sure. When I was born in 58, I still have a hospital receipt from when I was born. <laughs> somewhere in my attic. My mom was in the hospital for either six or seven days, and the bill, I think, was $127. Good for that hospital. <laughs> but my question is, and I want to... Make sure I understand mm-hmm. what you're saying about the Mars Corporation. Yeah. Are, are they grappling with the idea that it's best for them and their employees and the marketplace if they take their share of the market without necessarily dominating the market? If they dominate the market and squash your competitors, that's not really good. They actually see it that way. Yeah, they, okay. Yeah. I thought that's what I heard you say. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. And so they're actually eager to find other corporations and businesses that are wanting to enter into this with them. So one of the biggest names right now that actually says we want to take part in this is, is, a, for, is a publicly traded company, a European company. It's called Danone in Europe. We call it Danon, Danon Yogurt, you know, here in the U.S. Really. But they are entering into the same, you know, experiment with this economic situation. And I think the reason for going to the science school, that, I mean, the Harvard Business School wanted to take this on, as did the Wharton School, the Penn, uh, and these folks I work with said, no, we think Oxford's science school is a better place because of its international character. And so they were really wanting now that this to get out into a, a global conversation about the way business could be done. Yeah. yeah. So, I was just going to ask a question similar to that. It's not about this idea of, you know, location and what is holy work, et cetera, for a really long time. And uh, your, your comment about the Mars Corporation, it seems like, you know, when you come from a, a traditional, you know, Christian worldview, that really there is no such thing as, as bad work, as long as it's not overtly, you know, sinful. And such so that, you know, if I'm increasing shareholder profitability, I mean, in a sense, I do have a fiduciary responsibility to do that if someone is investing in my company or, 
is a shareholder of mm -hmm. the company, and by making that person uh, more profits, lots of good can come from that, right? I mean, Sometimes but, it can. But it's just not trackable. So you, you, don't, you don't know what the uh, executive that gets the million dollar bonus does with the million dollars. You just see that they get a million dollar bonus. And the, the or a 35 million. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and it's like, how, how do you kind of reconcile when you talk about, okay, I'm going to have a complex, a bottom line, but mm -hmm. to really quantify it and to track that yeah. to, to show that, yes, our current bottom line isn't producing enough good work, mm -hmm. uh, and that if we did it this way, had less share of the market, and that it automatically assumes that because we have less share of the market, we'll make less profit, that means that we're doing better work. So the first thing I would say to you is, it's a complex question you're asking, and any answer I can give has to be complex, but I will just touch on the edges of it, okay? Because it's a very good question, and I, if you want to talk more, we can talk more about it. Um, but one thing I would say, you know, just to say, plainly underlined, this is not a new way to be a philanthropy. Um, I mean, if Mars doesn't actually, you know, not only maintain but grow the market share, this is not a conversation we're going to be having. So this is not a way to sort of reimagine giving away M&Ms to the world, or to come sort of become a great charitable, you know, company that sort of says making money no longer matters to us. That's not the conversation we're having. It's simply saying that to make money over the long haul requires an attention to a more complex bottom line. You have to ask other questions. So to put it very concretely in terms of Mars, where they rely upon cocoa tr production in West Africa, three countries especially, you know, cocoa trees growing cocoa beans. As I put it to them, this is not green spin. You know, it isn't sort of like, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be nice to the trees this year? You know, uh, let's put an advertisement and, you know, the economists and say, you know, like what the Mars Corporation is doing to those trees in West Africa. Good for the Mars Corporation, you know. I mean, they almost put, I mean, I think, you know, I've never seen anything ever publicly written about this effort, you know. So there's no PR firm hired to, you know, sort of promote the green, the green of the Mars Corporation. That's not the issue here. What I've said to them is, if you don't actually take good care of the cocoa trees, if you don't steward them over the next 25 years, thinking about them, nourishing them, watching over them, you know, growing them, being careful how they grow, and growing new ones, new trees along the way, you will have no business in 25 years. It actually, you'll be done with make, having cocoa to, to make chocolates from, actually. So in some ways, it's the most real economic argument you could make. Really. Or to put it in other terms, I mentioned this morning at lunch about, you know, the Detroit, you know, sad story about, you know, um, you know becoming bankrupt in the last several years. You know, people who I know who live in Detroit would say, well, okay, I mean, don't you understand that those of us who live in Detroit would never buy a Monday or Friday car off the Detroit assembly line? And I first said, really? Why, why would that be? And they said, well, they don't make good cars Mondays and Fridays. I said, really? I said, well, of course, we want to always try to get a Wednesday ceremony. Really? You know, I'm sort of naive Californian, you know, Virginia now, I suppose, thinking, really? You know, Wednesday ceremony? And they said, well, the weekend's between Mondays, Fridays and Mondays, of course, and so Fridays, they've stopped paying attention to use some old days language here to make it a good car. On Mondays, they don't pay attention because they're so bummed having to be back at work after the weekend. So it says, if you can possibly get a Wednesday serial number, buy a Wednesday serial number. I'm thinking, really? That's how this works? You know? And so to be attentive actually to, to workers and to the conditions in which workers work 
than actually the very work itself. There's something actually about us as human beings which I would say demands a certain level of creativity and responsibility in our labor. And if we don't have ways to express that as human beings, I think we feel less than human. Now, I make no cheap critiques here in this, but I would say, you know, certain ways we've imagined work to be done in the modern world. Even Charlie Chaplin can see can see that 85 years ago in his films about the assembly line, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, and somehow we have to figure out a way. Actually, I think if we're going to somehow find a way into a better world, into the future, to remember what it, we require as human beings in terms of our work, what we want out of our work, you know, and then somehow say it doesn't have to be that way, really, or somehow we just know that in fact you don't want to buy a Friday car from the Detroit automakers. Because, of course, they don't make good cars on Friday. So, again, my argument to the Marsh Corporation has been if you don't care about the conditions in which people work, about the schools their kids go to, about the health care plans they have access to, about the houses they live in, you know, if we don't care about those things, then this conversation about economics and mutuality is just pie in the sky here. It has to be worked out in places like that, in conversations like that. So on the business side, you know, I mean, should we say so we shouldn't make a huge big bonus? I'm not. I couldn't say that, you know, always and everywhere, really. Um, I do think, you know, that it gets into more difficult conversations when you begin to say, well, you know, I know this isn't a good investment, but because uh, they're going to go belly up in three months. But the way, the way the market works is, if you want to spend your money like this, you'll spend your money like this. And I can't say no to you. I mean, in some ways, we've made rules about how we do this, which I would say probably are not for the common good. And those are longer, deeper, more complicated conversations to have. But um, again, my interest is always in how do we sustain? What habits of heart are required of us to sustain the best of who we're supposed to be in the world? And I think one of the things which has been difficult about the Mars Project has been people who are so sure that Friedman is the first and the last word about this, you know, saying, well, business is just business, so come on. I mean, how could you criticize business? That's the way business is done. And, you know, in my thou mayest argument tonight, I'm saying we see some people are saying, no, it could be done differently, actually. It could be imagined differently. And because you want to give MMs away, but because you want to keep making them for a long time and making money for them. Is that a way to start at least? Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure like really what the difference is. So listening to your answer seems like the, the bottom line is still the same. It's, it's still, you know, how can we maximize profitability? But in, in order to do that, we have to consider the, the nature of the trees and the, the quality of the health care, you know, because then we're going to have better people. But in some ways, I mean, to maximize, it's also to say, again, that first question that Bruno was asked by the, one of the owners of Mars, how much money should we make this year? And realizing that it wasn't, it, the answer probably was not going to be, we should make all the money we possibly could make. Not because he was a redistributionist or a communist or a socialist, but just saying, if we want to keep in business for the long haul, Bruno, how much money should we make this year? So, rather, your question is, how much money can we continue to make? I mean, you realize, I mean, I mean, you go back again to the implosion of Wall Street eight years ago, seven years ago. I mean, what happened? on some level was 
a financial instrument called subprime, subprime mortgages was offered to the world. And some people made a killing off of that. And they bought their homes in Nantucket and retired from Wall Street. And what happened to the rest of us? We have to pay the piper, you know, the rest of us for generations to come because the bill was so huge. You know, it doesn't go away. Yeah. I think it's fair to say, like what you're arguing for is it, it seems like some of this like is kind of redefining what is good business. And maybe not that like people aren't like slaves to sin, but we're just slaves to ignorance. That we define like good business as like a media. Or ignorance is maybe is a it's a loaded term philosophically, of course. Say that again. Lo- ignorance is a loaded term philosophically. Because in mm-hmm. Romans one's language, which I think is a prism into reality and history for all of us, we do know what we need to know. We just don't want to be responsible for what we true. Because it will cost us too much. It, will, it, 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 re, it requires too much of us to actually work out the implications of what we know to be true. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, so ignorance, in some yeah. ways, it was a different anthropological vision. I didn't know enough. I didn't know. I'm sorry, I didn't know. Uh, I think the biblical vision is we actually do know. We just don't want to have to be responsible for it. Would you say that this is like a, maybe people are afraid to work out, like take back their ignorance because they don't think it's going to like benefit them in the ways that they want to? And it's just maybe saying like, this maybe appeals what is like preventing them from doing good business or to like working this way is like their selfishness. But maybe it's just like reframes their selfishness. It's like, hey, we want to be good for 100 years. I mean, reframing is a lot of what I talk about, that thou mayest allows us to reframe reality, our place in the world. Because we can see that actually we can choose to do this differently. We're not stuck in the way it was always done. And the patterns that have led us to the moment of we have to divorce. This marriage is over, you see. And the only thing which is possible, Greg, of course, is to say the patterns don't have to be always this way. It could be done differently. You may not want to. You may choose against this, really. But you could in some way choose to not continue on as you have. The patterns have brought you to this sad place in your life together. Yeah. Otherwise, we just say, you know, shit happens and get over it. You know, get on with your life. Um, yeah. Just, just a quick comment, but it seems like this conversation has been uh, part of the environmental and sustainability community for quite some time, and it kind of mimics what um, you were answering to David, mm-hmm. um, and also the what matters is not just profit, but people and uh, place. Um, and I guess the only difference I could see, um, and that I come, uh, just just working in that field and, and looking at it, the only differences I see is that, um, and it, and it's a field that's um, flooded with non-Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like their motivation is more fear of. Um, of destruction uh, versus the motivation I have and I have seen in other Christians who are in this field of hope and um, providing something better. Do you see any other differences other than that? I mean, we should take a long walk together or something. (laughs) Um, But that's a very perceptive reading, I think, of the conversation we had. Um, And, uh, you know, and I, I mean, there's no argument here. This is a brand new thing to say out loud in the world. Um, um, and clearly it isn't, I mean, again, it isn't because Mars is a Christian company that are asking these questions. 
they actually are very serious about making billions of dollars next year, billions upon billions of dollars next year. Uh, really serious about that, actually. Um, and, uh, but I think that you're right, and I think what you're reading of this is a lot of this is fear-dominated, fear-shaped, fear really. Um, maybe I'll leave you with this one little story before we should, maybe, I don't know if you're calling this, but there's a new store opened up here in Austin called Elevation Burger. The man who imagined this is the chairman of the board of what was for many years of the Washington Institute. I had lunch with him yesterday, Wednesday, I guess. Um, Hans Hess is his name. And, uh, and I have been teasing Hans for years about whether you're ever going to make, for the, those of us who need to buy Christian products, a Christian hamburger, or at least a holy hamburger. Because <laughs> <laughs> you see, Hans does believe in the Nicene Creed. He actually believes in the gospel. And a lot of Christians who you know, know that that's true of him wonder, well, I mean, you've got the Vertigo Burger and the Elevation Burger, and you've got that, blah, 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 blah. where's the Holy Hamburger Hans? We actually took seminary students from a really good seminary in America, unnamed tonight, you know, to, who came into Washington for a week to think about vocations in the world. And we hosted them for a week on this question, taking them to the Capitol and to the this and the White House and you know, to Elevation Burger one day, too. And, uh, there was actually a serious question from these seminary students. Um, where, how would anybody know you're a Christian, Hans? Where are the signs on the walls? You know, um, you know, and they actually said, we think you're kidding yourself, really. I mean, where's your witness? How would anybody know that actually you're a Christian if you don't have signs on the walls telling us that, in fact, for John 3.16's sake, you know, you ought to buy a hamburger like this today. <laughs> so I've asked Hans a little playfully for many years, when are you going to learn to make a holy hamburger, Hans? Uh, instead, what he makes are, you know, as the sign says as you walk into the store, hamburgers the way they're meant to be, burgers the way they're meant to be. Kind of a nice graphic, you think. That was nicely done, actually. Burgers the way they're meant to be. And you see, again, in the pluralizing, secularizing world we live in today, the idea of meant to be is a contested question now. Because there aren't any meant to be really left in a secularizing world. Are you sure? Come on. Meant to be, things are supposed to be, that there's a norm for this, it, there's a, a, it ought to be like this. Come on. Nothing ought to be left in the, in the world, really. We're over that a long time ago, actually. It's just the way you want it to be. How do you want it? What do you prefer, really? And, uh, but I would say, you no, know, Hans's allegiance to the meta-narrative <coughs> we talked about tonight this creation, fall, redemption, consummation story makes him bring into being a burger the way it's meant to be. Because, of course, if you have eyes to see, maybe you would see it as a signpost in a strange land. Maybe if you had ears to hear, you might say, meant to be, Hans. I mean, what do you mean by that? And I told Hans, you see, it's a little bit like Jesus telling the story, an agricultural one itself, of course, by, about seed and soils, very first of all the parables. He tells this simple story about four different kinds of soils, and the seed goes out, and he says, if you have ears to hear, then hear, and he walks away. Doesn't put a sign up, you know, and says, you know, John 3, 16, the end of the story. You know, he just says, if you have ears to hear, then hear. And uh, it's only when the disciples say, what do you mean by that, Jesus? He says, well, I mean, what I mean by that, actually. So I told Hans, he's actually making eschatological hamburgers. <laughs> uh, and uh, but I can't promise him 
But I said, it might be, Hans. You see, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, because you see, it will be the first thing we do is have dinner together, you know, when the new heavens and new earth finally come together. We'll have dinner together, a big long table. And everything on the table will be healthy and tasty food at the very same time. No trade-offs. It won't be like, well, I'll eat a donut for breakfast, but an apple for lunch. (laughs) It'll be, everything on the table will be healthy and tasty together. So for Hans to offer a healthy, tasty meal for us right now, even if it isn't perfect, but it's approximate, you know, know, meal for me, really. I'm not 18, you can tell that, really. When I was 18, I could eat anything, you know, and go to bed a half an hour later. If I did that now, I wouldn't sleep for the rest of the night, really. I mean, if I ate dumb food and put it in my body, like a Five Guys hamburger, you can do that when you're 18, but when you get to be, you know, 35 and 45, 55, you think, why did I do that? I'm sick to my stomach again, really. To finally decide, never again will I ever eat a Five Guys hamburger, really. Which I did several years ago, thinking, I'm done with Five Guys, really. I don't want to be sick for 18 hours, you know. Because it's not good for you, really. When I eat Hans's hamburgers, organically produced, naturally fed beef that he kills his cows from. (laughs) I just go back to work and don't think about it, really. I think, isn't that interesting? Just intuitively, I don't even think about it again. The French fries are fried in olive oil, which again isn't magic, it's just better for us. You think, well, good for you, Hans. It could be done differently. Now, Hans, in some ways, got into this by a fear. He worked for a congressman some years ago on Capitol Hill, the Congress was asked the question, why are antibiotics not being helpful to kids in America like they once were? And Hans began to read and to think about it and do research and ask questions. And one line of research he came up with was that we were eating so many antibiotic-laced meats in America today that we needed antibiotics in our systems to help us. We weren't able to make good use of them, actually. Now, if you know how big feedlots work in America today, uh, I grew up in the West, I grew up loving cows, I still do, actually, but... You know, if you put antibiotics in the feed, you know, and, and you know, don't let cows eat as they're supposed to eat. Actually, if you put antibiotics in, they don't get sick because you're giving them the wrong food to eat anyway. You know. Well, when we need to have antibiotics be helpful to us, they're not helpful. Hans thought this was a health crisis actually, and he began to think through about two years: how can I make a healthier hamburger? In some ways, it was born out of a question of a fear of a problem. For Hans, it actually was his own eschatological vision saying, what could I do to make a hamburger that's a signpost in a strange land? And I think he has. So, thank you. Thank you.